Welcome to the Financial Purpose Podcast. All opinions expressed by me or guests of the podcast are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Life Moves Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any financial or investment decisions. Clients of Life Moves Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Dale Schaefer, and here's another great episode starting now. Let's go. And welcome to episode 30 of the Financial Purpose Podcast. I am joined today by a, uh, a very special guest. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. So uh, say hello to Paloma Goggins of Nocturnal Legal. Hi, Paloma. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, as an introduction, I pulled this right off your website. So this should be no surprise <laughs> to you when I read it. Um, but Paloma is a former big law attorney graduate from a, tro- a top 20. If I can speak today, then we'll have a great podcast. <laughs> graduate from a top 20 law school, having worked with businesses of all sizes from startups to family owned to Fortune 500 companies, Paloma intimately understands the ins and outs of launching, growing and maintaining business success through thoughtful and conscientious legal counsel. She launched Nocturnal Legal. When was that? Uh, It's been over a year and a half ago now. Nice. So right around the same time that Life Moves launched. I think we were launching around the same time. Yes. Um, So she launched Nocturnal Legal, a full service business law firm to provide smart, effective legal services to businesses and individuals alike. Turning the old legal model upside down, Paloma offers client-focused services via hourly and flat rate fees customized to fit your specific needs. After spending her childhood growing up in the family business and stepping eventually into the role of general counsel, Paloma has uniquely or is uniquely equipped to assist with the complexities involved in running a family-owned and operated business. In her free time, Paloma likes to hike, bike, and play golf. She also enjoys photography and catching views of the Milky Way and dark sky parks. Nice. And uh, for education, you have your JD from the Washington University School of Law and a BA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and you have bar admissions in Arizona and Wisconsin. So, Paloma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Is there anything I left off that uh, is of note? No, that, I think that covers everything. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, I... You know, it's really interesting because we know each other fairly well. And so you have a lot of different experience working on the legal side with businesses. Um, and and I we could start any number of places as far as, you know, where to take the conversation. But I think where this started is I, I really wanted to get just kind of a general sense um, for some business owners of what really where they should start, because I think that there's a lot of businesses that are formed, um, you know, I, as you know, as well as I do, we can go on to the here in Arizona, at least to the Commerce Corporation website. And for $85, we have ourselves an LLC. And so it's just the I think a lot of people kind of um, helping them understand the formation process, what they need to look for, legal contracts, that kind of thing. So I guess we can start by by asking maybe from the outset, Paloma, what are a couple of things that business owners should be doing when they're starting or even when they're thinking that they're going to start a business? I mean, where where do where does your mind go? Where where did they go? What what's a good starting point? 
Yeah. So I think most people, right, when you start a business, you're maybe in the future thinking about exiting and, you know, whether that's a, a sale because you want to start a business and then flip it, or it's just, you're going to build it until you're at an age where you're ready to retire and then sell it off either to someone that's in your family or a third party. But most people, when they're starting a business at the very outset, I think that's such a long-term goal that they don't think that it's critical to think about it in the kind of launch or startup phase. But um, I think one of the ways that not planning for exit from the outset could get in the way is that people typically will start entering into important contracts for their business, um, either with you know, vendor suppliers or third parties that are critical to kind of day-to-day -day operations. And, you know, things are just getting started. So there's not a whole lot of imposition to think about assignment or change of control, right? And so a lot of times when people are ready to sell, they go to these contracts because they have to be provided during the due diligence phase. And all of a sudden we look at the assignment provision and determine that either assignment is, you know, must be consented to by that third party that's in the contract with them, or worse yet, if, if there's, you know, it's a stock sale or membership interest sale, there's also potentially a change of control restriction requiring consent. And while it might not sound like that big of a deal, there are instances where bringing up the fact that the company is selling um, has a significant, you know, detrimental effect on that relationship with that third party in the contract. So, you know, providing them notice um, usually is is not a, a good thing. And sometimes it may not even be granted. So um, when I'm working with like startup companies or people that are sort of long-term vision is to exit or flip the company at some point when it gets big enough and is attractive to a larger corporation inside that industry is to start drafting contracts with that in mind or negotiating them with that in mind. So a good example is working in like a SaaS company, you know, somebody that's working in um, a software type industry where maybe they're acquiring personal data or some sort of other things that might eventually be transferred to another party that also can come into play. So something I think that you can just kind of keep in the back of your mind, um, you know, obviously it's sometimes hard to think about it that far in advance, but something to keep in mind. Yeah. And so we're talking here about um, specifically things like vendor contracts. Um, does that extend into things like, um, you know, space for retail or office or um, those kinds of lease negotiations? Where, where does that extend into? For sure. Leases, um, I think for the most part become, they're either very easy to assign um, or they become sort of an, a huge negotiation point. It really does depend on the relationship that the seller has with their landlord. So um, it's usually pretty common to see a commercial lease have very broad restrictions on assigning the lease, um, even at sale without the landlord's consent, because a lot of landlords want to ensure that the party that takes over is, you know, 
sound financially, is going to be capable of continuing their financial obligations and, you know, going to be a good overall tenant. And so a lot of times they're not going to relinquish that control. Um, so even if you do try and negotiate that out, usually it's not going to happen. Um, but that the assignment of the lease um, typically you know, obviously there are exceptions where a change of control kind of flies under the radar and the assignment provision is only related to say an asset sale, but um, a lot of instances where you get into these situations with the landlord. And unfortunately, there are a lot of sellers that aren't super familiar with the terms of their original lease, right? Because it's sometimes it's been like 15, 20 years since they signed the original lease and maybe have extended it over and over and over. So the original terms are maybe long forgotten. Um, and some additional complexities that might come into play is, um, you know, some landlords put in there that, you know, they're paid a flat fee to cover their legal expenses um, related to assignment or some other reasonable attorney fees. And sometimes those are really expensive. And so they add additional costs to the assignment of the lease that nobody was planning for. So that's also something that could kind of be on the radar, especially if you're just starting out and negotiating a lease or or renewal of a space. Yeah. And, and I think I, what might be um, of interest to some people, you know, because I, I try to think about these things and it seems like every time you and I have a conversation, I think about how it applies to me and to my business, right? And so I wonder at what point does somebody look at any kind of agreement or anything that they're going to sign and say, you know what, I need to have Paloma look at this or I need to have some business attorney look at this. What What's that line realistically for most businesses where it's going to be helpful for you to call or for them to call you in? I feel like it's a, it's a little bit of a trick question because I always think that it doesn't hurt to have a business attorney look at whatever you're going to sign. I think there are some very sophisticated business owners that have been in, you know, knees deep in contract work throughout their, you know, entrepreneurial life or their business life. And so they feel very confident. Um, but I would say on average, there's a lot of people that um, will come to me and say, hey, do I need to have you review this? And my question is always, do you understand it fully? Um, or are there provisions that because of the legalese that's in there, maybe it's not super clear, or you're not 100% certain what it means. Um, and 99% of the time they say, well, I get most of it, but there's you know 10% that I've read the provision and I, it doesn't even make sense to me. Um, and those are the instances where I'm like, okay, why don't, you know, if you don't want me reviewing the whole contract, why don't you just tell me what sections don't make sense? And then we can talk through them um, and determine whether it's important to maybe try and negotiate or revise them further. But I think it's, it's good practice, especially because a lot of contracts, unfortunately, are just not drafted with a layperson in mind, right? You're not going to read it and be able to just make sense of it um a lot of the time and why why is that <laughs> it's what? i i don't know if i have a good answer for you but um i think you know way back when when there's like the here with and therefore and all of that um you know i, I almost think like the 1800s like when that stuff comes about but um I think part of it is that it's just how it's been done for so long and it gets passed on generation to generation. And um, I think it will start to slowly, I think, decrease over time because of the way that the legal industry is kind of morphing and changing. But mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, most, I will say this, most leases are still very archaic in language. So those are typically very uh, difficult to understand for just the, the regular person. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I, cu I cut you off mid thought. So no, no, no worries. Like you said, I, this is a conversation, so I'd rather you interject <laughs> or, um, you know, have back and forth. Uh, but yeah, no, I think just to finish off that previous point, I, I don't think there's necessarily a, a bad time to have somebody at least double check certain things. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, especially when they're starting out right and the budget's tight and you're maybe trying to just launch on, you know, a shoestring in some instances, I think if you are worried about spending too much money on legal at the outset, you can always create a limited scope of representation and say, look, I just don't understand indemnification and limitation of liability, which those are arguably probably the hardest to read in most contracts and sure. have that be the conversation. Yeah. Okay. And so you, you started, uh, or you talked about starting or beginning with the end in mind, which I think is, is very important. I mean, most of us start businesses probably because either we see something that needs to be provided in the community, or we want to make more money, or we're terrible employees. And so we need to work for ourselves or whatever it is. Right. And so what uh, there needs to be an eventual exit. And I know as a, as an advisor with what I do, there's an awful lot of businesses that are started that are never properly exited. And so you get a lot of value trapped into those businesses that can't be unlocked. So when somebody's thinking about starting a business, or even if they're already in business and they're thinking about where the next maybe stage for the business goes, or at some point, how do I get out of this? How do I sell it? Right. That's the the question that every business owner wants to ask is, I know this thing has value. How do I sell it? And that's a very complicated question. So what should a business owner be thinking about long before they're saying, how do I sell my business by the end of the year? And it's October. I think, you know, setting aside the fact that planning typically for most business owners doesn't start at the beginning, right? When you start to be in that cusp area where you're like, okay, next next year, next three years, maybe even five years. I think five years is probably, you know, it's a lot of people feel like that's still a ways out. So I think they're almost too relaxed about it, right? Um, but I think one of the ways that you can really start to prepare is to get your documentation in order. Um, one of the biggest parts of selling a business right is the due diligence process. So the buyer is going to ask for corporate records, all of the documentation of the company since its existence, um, things that document changes in membership interests, if it's an LLC or changing of hands of stock, if it's a corporation, mm -hmm. things that show minutes, uh, things, you know, things that essentially show the existence and evolution of the company on a corporate level. And then they're also going to ask for all of the contracts that are active between the company and a third party. So, you know, going back to kind of what we talked about originally with like the vendor supplier or any third party contract that you might enter into, that applies also to, you know, independent contractor agreements, employment agreements, uh, things related to employee benefits. A lot of people don't think about they're going to have to show what insurance policies have been maintained, what are the limits, what are the uh, policy numbers. And then also, you know, if, if 
assumption of the benefits plan is going to happen. They're going to need to know that information as well. And so there's just this kind of overwhelming uh, nature of, of due diligence when the company is not very organized and mm. nothing is maintained in a in a way or a fashion that you can just say, okay, he here's all the folders I have, right? Of all the business, critical business information that I have. I can't tell you how many clients I work with that, you know, are super successful, you know, multi-million dollar businesses that are owned and operated by families and you come in and they don't have any records. Um, and it just blows my mind. Uh, you know, there's contracts that are just handshakes. Um, they might've put something yeah. on paper, but nobody signed it. And, and that's the stuff that people don't think about impacting the sale of the business, but it really, it really does. And it can slow down the process, even if the buyer is okay with saying like, okay, this huge, you know, million dollar sale purchase and sale contract that's been in the business and helps kind of, um, move the, move the, uh, financial balance, right. Every year, uh, even though that's kind of a handshake deal, maybe they're okay with it. But at the same time, if you come up with a contract and it's not signed and the question goes, where's the signed copy. And then you have to say, Oh, we don't have one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's those types of conversations that can really put a speed bump in the, the acquisition process. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think a lot of that's really challenging because you think of a small business owner, you know, you're kind of bootstrapping the thing to get it launched and and scale. You bring in your first employee and even just that first employee, that, that employee contract, um, you know, as far as how that's going to work, what they're supposed to do, what you're supposed to provide, if there's a non-compete, right. Intellectual property protection, things like that. I mean, I can imagine it can be very easy to just skip right over that and just hire the person get them started, put them on their W2 and off you go. Right. So what are some things that people need to be aware of, especially when they're making their first hire or they're scaling maybe to a second location or something like that? What, what's helpful for business owners there? I think first and foremost, don't ever underestimate the importance of having those employment offers or uh, independent contractor agreements in place. A lot of people don't consider the fact that those contracts don't just include the base terms, right? A lot of people just think, okay, what am I paying you for? And what are the services you're providing me? And in reality, the things that are protected in a lot of those ancillary documents that are signed, you know, non-disclosure agreements, so protecting confidentiality, things that might be really critical, like in our business, right? Um, access to potential client information of those those people. I think, you know, having an NDA is almost critical in every business, but um, yeah. especially true in professional service businesses. And, you know, in other types of businesses, a lot of people don't think too far in advance about access to intellectual property or processes. Um, I had a client couple of years ago that hired sort of a, an intern from a college, local college, and decided to kind of just hire them on an ad hoc basis. They didn't really have anything in writing, just kind of stipulated in an email, here's what I'm going to pay you. This is, you know, essentially a two month internship based on how the college offered this internship program. And uh, the student ended up turning around and trying to take ownership over designs that they had created for the company. And that's, that's, I think, a really good example of um, 
not having, you know, being really excited about having help and kind of skipping that necessary step, which is having them sign the proper agreements in place that say, hey, whatever you create is technically work made for hire and it's our company's property and you relinquish that. And if you want to come up with an agreement later on for them to use it just for, you know, applying to jobs or, you know, some sort of limited scope, then obviously that's, that's up to that business owner. But those types of instances, um, it comes up more frequently than people realize, right? Mm -hmm. People just kind of, unfortunately not being the best of people (laughs) looking, looking for advantages, right. When they shouldn't be. Yeah, for sure. And so I'm thinking, you know, you, you talked about due diligence and and buying and a lot of times I think we focus on, or, or at least I tend to focus on the business owner having somebody come in to, to purchase the business because typically I'm representing the business owner in particular. Um, as my client. And so I want to flip that on the other side. And so if you're somebody who's looking to acquire a business, or if you want to um, maybe provide some capital and do some investing as a silent partner or whatever, what what are the types of things that go into that level of due diligence if you're considering buying a business versus if you're the acquiree, if you will? Yeah, I think you know, being a buyer obviously puts you in a really great position because you could be choosy, right? Um, You're not in a position where you're trying to figure out how to make your business saleable, but instead you're kind of looking for the the golden ticket, right? Whatever is a good fit for what you want to operate, um, whether that's a first business and you want to shortcut the nature of having to start something from scratch, or maybe you're a habitual buyer. I know a lot of people who buy and sell businesses either as investments in their own business or kind of as like like home flippers, right? They like mm-hmm. to come in, it's distressed, make it better, flip it, do it again. Um, I applaud those people because the, the thought of coming into a distressed company is so stressful in my mind that uh, to have that aptitude, I think is incredible. But I think as a buyer, you know, a couple of things that I see kind of over and over when I do represent buyers is at the outset, I would always recommend getting financial picture first. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times I think people are so excited about the opportunity that financials kind of come somewhere in the middle in the diligence process. And a lot of times attorneys are already working on putting together the the purchase agreement or any of the ancillary documents. And so a lot of time and energy has already been spent on the transaction. And sometimes when the financials come through, they're not what they had expected or things aren't as rosy as they had thought that they were, um, or maybe the the record keeping is really poor. And so it's hard to make heads and tails of accounts receivable and accounts payable and things like that. And so I always recommend with my buyers, uh, if we're going to put in a letter of intent, obviously, you know, that has to come first because you're agreeing to remain, you know, have confidential information, remain confidential in this process, you know, and in exchange, there's usually an exclusivity period, right? But after the LOI is signed, I always tell them first and foremost, let's ask for financials because that tends to be the make or break point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think on that same note, um, being a buyer means kind of thinking in the long term. And so when you start to learn more about the business, some, I think, very critical questions that come up 
kind of over and over in my practices, are there key employees that are necessary to the day-to-day operation that if you close without them, you're left high and dry and all of a sudden you're trying to step in and do people's jobs that arguably were necessary to just kind of continue operations as if nothing happened. Um, And that can really, I think a lot of people don't think that far, right? They're just thinking about how to get the deal done. And um, kind of in the process, retention of key employees or retention of talent kind of only hits home closer to closing. And so that's a conversation I like to have early on is like, maybe we're not going to talk to them because the owner doesn't want to have that information out quite yet, but we need to have a a pulse on how many people are going to be willing to stay and and what that's going to take. Yeah. And I can imagine the same would be true of, you know, because you absolutely want to secure key talent. I would think that you also want to have a way to secure key vendor relationships or supplier relationships, because there's a lot of things, you know, I mean, even just basic terms. I mean, will you be able to maintain the same, you know, invoicing terms with that key supplier that uh, that that the current business owner has, because if not, that totally skews your financials anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of on that same token, there's, I think a lot of times people don't realize that, you know, some of the, I think, pre-existing business relationships can be really tied to the owner being a part of that business, right? Because it's a longstanding relationship. And so I think a lot of people don't realize that sometimes having the ownership change hands, changes hands is, is a huge red flag for some of those vendors or suppliers or people that are sort of partnered with the business. And um, to that same point, I've seen quite a few instances where the kind of licensing and permitting and things that are critical to truly just operating, right? Setting aside employees and talent and all of that, just just the regulatory aspects of the business. Um, those, Those things can sometimes not be transferable very easily. And so uh, what started as an asset sale quickly changes to a stock or membership interest sale because we we can't have assignment occur. And so those permits and licensing issues, like a good example is um, Medicaid, Medicare kind of issues. A lot of healthcare-based companies typically will do a stock sale or a membership interest sale so that there is just a change of control. There's no assignment because otherwise you don't get to keep your EIN, which is tied to all the regulatory issues. And so that type of stuff, I think um, as a buyer, you know, you're really thinking through how do I, even though the seller is agreeing that things will be maintained post-closing as if nothing happened, there are so many potential pitfalls there that you need to have discussions about early on. Um, and that's kind of how you should drive due diligence, right? Is question-based. Yeah. And I, I imagine that even um, everything you just said, the, you know, the one thing that I think in the financials that we see are are things like bank accounts and, you know, cash flow. And sometimes that change happens and those bank accounts and cash flows don't get transferred properly, or there's just a lot of work that has to to be managed there to remove control, take on control, whatever. I, I can't imagine, I couldn't imagine actually going in and being a buyer without somebody like yourself there. It just, there, there seems to be too many things that even for the savvy buyer, they're somebody who's savvy and they've done this a few times, they're probably going to have legal counsel anyway. Right. So I can't imagine doing it without someone like you there. 
Yeah. And I'm sure there, there are plenty of business owners that try and do it themselves. I, you know, there's always that person, uh, both sell and buy side. Right. Uh, but I do think that there's definitely a positive in having counsel. I think there's even bigger positive having counsel that has experience in the merger and acquisition field because their experience will help guide you in ways that maybe you didn't see the potential issues until it's too late without them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about beginning with the end in mind and and one of those beginning things um, is even just the basic formation. And I know I had asked you about that kind of as, as pre-thinking for the podcast and um, it's uh, your answer is very much similar to the answer that I'm going to give on a lot of things, which is it depends. It depends yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kind of, you know, the, if you can maybe just like basics, you know, I, with rules of thumb, I think, you know, I tell people is that there's in finance, there's rules of thumb and how we apply those to you are going to vary depending on your situation. So I imagine it's very similar with legal and, and entity structure. Yeah. And entity structure, in my opinion, is it really is more, I think, related to how you want the business to function prior to exit. Because no matter what, regardless of whether you're a corporation or an LLC, you're, the way that you sell your business might change a little bit in terms of how the the purchase is structured um, or the sale is structured, however you want to look at it. But at the end of the day, no structure is going to impede your ability to make that happen. It's just a, a matter of what steps need to be completed in order to make the transaction possible. So I always tell people when they're starting out and they're trying to figure out what's the best foot forward for how they're going to structure their company, you know, it's it's going to be very unique to their own situation and what they have planned, whether that's multi-member or maybe they have, in, you know, a need to work with, you know, venture capital, which a lot of them like to have corporations. And so it's not like you're stuck either. I think a lot of people worry if I form an LLC, I'm going to be stuck in the LLC forever. There are ways to transition the business to be in a different entity form. It's not always easy depending on which form you're in at the time, but there is flexibility that still remains. So it's not like you're stuck forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, it's interesting because I see a lot of, um, a lot of interesting opinions on entities and and how, how to set them up and what they're supposed to do. And, you know, I, I see if, if you look at anything that's on like TikTok or, or whatever, right, you use an entity to uh, give yourself tax breaks the rich don't want you to know about or whatever. And, you know, entities, it, it's a it's a legal formation, not a tax formation. So, but they are taxed differently, depending on how that entity is structured. So what are some things that people um, need to look for or think about when they're considering, number one, how do I want to be formed? Second, how do I want to be taxed? And what does that mean for my business? Yeah, I, I personally think that limited liability companies provide you with probably the most flexibility with the least amount of sort of annual upkeep, especially in Arizona. Um, you don't have the traditional annual filing requirements like in a lot of states in Arizona, so you can kind of set it and forget it. Um, 
if you don't have changes right to your membership interest, in which case you're going to want to update it on, on the Arizona Corporation Commission. But I think for the most part, you, you really have kind of two routes, right? And the corporate route is really great when you want the structure and sort of outline of when we have meetings, I want to document everything. Not that you you shouldn't be documenting things in an LLC, but there's just much more formal requirements associated with corporations. And I will say a lot of people think that Delaware law is, is king for everything business related. And it's kind of that aspect of it has kind of, I think, through, you know, the game of telephone throughout the business community been perceived as like everything should be Delaware law. And right. the truth is, is that if you have a corporation, it's great. Delaware corporate law is amazing. It's it's far more sophisticated than any, probably most other states. I'm not going to say any other state because I don't know all of the states, right? But um, it's it's just so sophisticated and it covers so many aspects of it that if you are a corporation, you know, it's a great way to, to make sure that you have that structure. Um, but for everything else, you know, Delaware is just like any other state. So a lot of people always ask me when they're forming an LLC, should I form it in Delaware? And I'm like, no, <laughs> are you domiciled <laughs> in Arizona? Then you should be in Arizona. Right. Right. Um, but I, I, I mean, naturally the sort of the LLC as an entity was created to allow for flexibility. And what most people don't realize is that, and this goes for pretty much most states, when you don't create an operating agreement, which is essentially the playbook for your LLC, that the statute for your state governs. And if you have any missing aspects in your operating agreement, the default rule typically is to go back to the statute and it fills in the, the gap is what they call it. And so a lot of times I tell people the LLC is only as good for you as a business if you go through the process of putting together an operating agreement, because then you're, you're creating the rules that you want, right? It's not being dictated by the default statute. Um, but what's nice is that you, in Arizona, you have the ability to draft around the statute and choose how you want to have your, your business run and operated. What, what should be trans, how can you transfer membership interests? Who can transfer what happens on death or disability? Right. Um, and it's cool, but also you have to go through that process because, you know, a lot of people will create the LLC and say, oh, the operating agreement, we'll just do that at a later date. And that's the worst. It's kind of like, I'm going to get on the treadmill tomorrow. It's not going <laughs> to happen, right? So um, I always tell people, do, do it while things are fresh, right? Before business gets so busy that you can't seem to prioritize getting the operating agreement in place. And I think just as a side note on that topic, People who are single member LLCs think, oh, it's just me. I don't need that document because I don't have multiple members that I have to have sort of governance over. And the truth of the matter is, is if you pass away and you don't have an operating agreement in place that uses an alternative person to sort of wind up your business, then it's so complicated that it ends up going through probate and all this other stuff that you don't want to have your loved ones to have to go through. So I always tell people the single member operating agreement is what essentially covers you in case something terrible happens and that person has the power to come in and make sweeping changes or wind up the business and there's no probate, you know, or, or state yeah. planning kind of process that has to take place. Yeah. And that's, that 
that brings up a, a question um, that I have on the estate planning side. Um, I I see some attorneys, uh, on estate planning attorneys in particular, who uh, will do things like make their trust, the, the client's trust, a member of the LLC, so that if something happens to the business owner, the business interest transfer to the trust, and then the trust, you know, can can wind the business down. What are, I mean, is that is that the way that you would recommend? Or there's some, is that also an it depends type scenario? I think it's also dependent on the preference of the people, right? Um, whether whether you have a trust at all. You know, I know some people who haven't done what they probably should and go and get an estate plan or talk to even a estate planning attorney. And so if you have a trust, obviously that's a really great option because you're going to have a trustee and that person can can essentially step in as either co-trustee or sole trustee to make those changes or maybe continue the business. I mean, if the operating agreement allows you to sort of, you know, defer power to that, the the manager, or the sole member and have them continue operating the business, maybe they decide to put president in or somebody else or sell the company or whatever it may be. Um, but it's for the benefit of the trust. And that's great. I think in some instances, you're not going to be able to have whether it's a trust or an alternative person, like in my business, even if I list my husband as the person who steps in after, you know, if something were to happen to me, he can't, he's not an attorney, right? So he can't operate my business. All he can do is wind up my business. Right. Um, and so, you know, in some instances, like, you know, um, mental health professionals or physicians or anybody else that has specific licensure requirements, you of course can always defer power to some entity, whether that's a trust or another person to kind of help wind up your business in the event of something happening to you. But you would need to have somebody if you wanted it to continue to operate or pass it on to somebody else that's, you know, like in the legal field, you're supposed to have an alternative lawyer that can take over your matters in the event something happens. That would potentially be someone different than somebody who steps in and acts as winding up the business, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think back, circling back all the way to your original point, I think it really does depend on uh, the person's preferences and how they want things handled, just kind of like setting up a regular estate plan, right? It's based on how you want things to be handled. Yeah. And it sounds like the the estate plan documents and the operating agreement, those would need to refer to each other once they're both in place, I would imagine. I have a lot of uh, sort of unique conversations with people who think the operating agreement can be a catch-all. And I tell them it, it doesn't. Arizona is a community property state. So it's always a unique situation to have that conversation where you say, look, your spouse has 50% interest in whatever membership interest you have. We can create a spousal consent in the operating agreement, but that does not replace a postnuptial agreement. And there's stuff we can put in the operating agreement that says a member is going to transfer maybe at death all of their, their interest back to the company, which essentially would be some form of redemption. Mm -hmm. But- if they don't have that mirrored in their estate planning documents, all of a sudden you have quite a conflict on your hands. And so I always try and advise people that, yes, you were planning for the business and creating these rules and the operating agreement, but they can't be in a, in a sort of a silo, right? You have to be thinking about planning and doing kind of 
subsequent to family law and estate planning law to, in order to really cover all your bases. Okay. So spaghetti. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all touching. Yeah. Okay. Well, Paloma, who, who do you, you know, when a business owner is consulting you or, or they're, they're coming and they're asking for advice or they're hiring you to, to be their representation, what, what types of things are they hiring you for? Who do you, who do you like to work with? I mean, what, what's ideal there for you? Most clients hire me for sort of two different buckets. One is on the merger and acquisition side, and that's really advising clients, whether they're on the, the buy side or the sell side, I represent both. And that's through the entire acquisition or disposition process. So starting with the letter of intent all the way to closing. Um, and then in some instances, if I'm representing the buyer, they might have me stay on for post-closing integration work where just trying to figure out how to get all the contracts transferred appropriately, you know, onboard the clients or onboard the employees, things that are really just kind of a headache post-closing to get things sort of all under one roof, I should say. And that happens quite frequently with asset sales, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other bucket is sort of this just outside general counsel work. So helping businesses with what I would consider day-to-day -day legal needs, something that if they were going to need someone on a more regular basis, they would potentially hire them full-time as an employee, but they're not quite there yet. And so they just need someone who's going to be plugged into the business that they can call when they need them, will intimately understand what they have going on day to day and kind of just help on a regular basis. Those are the clients that sometimes are my buyers, right? People that are expanding the footprint of their business through acquisitions. I, I get that quite a lot, but also just businesses that are, you know, hiring, hiring new folks, entering into new negotiations with third parties, um, you name it. They just might need kind of legal oversight on, on contract work. Yeah. And if, uh, if, if you're, if you're an advisor financial advisor in particular, um, Paloma, what, what types of things do I, as the advisor need to be looking out for, uh, for my business owner clients? And, and what are some of the things that we should be looking out for that would, um, potentially need your guidance? I think first and foremost, if you're having sort of really honest conversations about where things are with the status of the business. And you find out that there's been a lot of transfer of interest, either among employees and the, and the owner or family members. And you find out that the Arizona Corporation Commission doesn't show any of it and they don't have any paperwork like legitimizing those transfers or um, any of the changes on a corporate level. I think that's a good, a really good segue to saying, do you have a business attorney that you can go to and have conversations with them about sort of just getting all this on paper? And if not, you know, can I make an introduction to someone that you can just have an initial conversation with and figure out how to get the business kind of in better shape? Because I think that's the biggest uphill battle, right? Is that a lot of businesses are trying to get in shape mm -hmm. while also going through the disposition process which is just really complicated to try and figure out how to get all of the sort of corporate structure on paper while also providing everything through diligence and um, 
something that's kind of weirdly common is that I, I get into these situations with buyers where we look at the Arizona Corporation Commission and and especially on corporations, I don't know why this is the case, but a lot of times you look at the annual report and you find that it's got you know, hundred thousand or a million or a thousand, whatever the amount is of shares, right? And they're all outstanding. None of them are issued, not even to the owner. And you know that's something that if you're going through a stock sale, you're not buying anything because it's all just part of the company. Um, and so you kind of have to say, okay, pause. The company needs to make the the stock, you know, transfer the stock to the owner so that the owner is actually selling the stock to us. And it all kind of makes sense. Otherwise, it's kind of just circular, right? Um, right. So those types of issues are the issues that ultimately, if I, if I had one wish working with a lot of business clients, it would be that you would hire me earlier, right? Because we can get out ahead of a lot of this kind of what I would call like clerical work, right? To get the business in a really good spot where all the ownership is documented on paper and, you know, the ACC isn't, you know, it matches everything that has been agreed to. And, um, you know, don't, I always tell people with LLCs, don't ever just have it be a handshake because it's so complicated because if you do sell the business and there's just some random person that's going to have a 2% interest and it's not documented anywhere, arguably they either walk away with 2% on sort of the back end and it's not really legitimate or they can be cut out entirely depending on how that's structured, right? So yeah. I think if that was my one wish, it would be that people would just start doing the pre-planning earlier. It's not sexy work. It's not exciting, but it really does make the transition when you're ready so much easier. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not only the financials and the people that are impacted, but I mean, even just the 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 way that that sale is taxed and over what period of time and it, yeah, there's, there's just too many hoops to... Uh, to have spinning at the same time, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. No, and I, I think too, um, I think, you know, having helped so many businesses look at commercial contracts that they just use in entering into relationships. Um, I used to work in-house for Generac Power Systems and worked with our sales team. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's just going to be a routine contract, right? Related to like in this case, it was like a lot of, you know, manufacturing or sales of, of products that were being purchased, but at quantity. And I can't tell you how many times you, you read the contract and you find these tidbits just tucked in there that are just not great. You know, they're, they're not great or they're really detrimental to the relationship. Um, a lot of times in that, in that manufacturing world, you see people trying to sneak in exclusivity or um, there's, there's a, I won't get super technical on our, on our podcast, but there's like, a, <laughs> uh, there's a provision that people can slip in for like best pricing. And so like, if you decide to give a discount to somebody else, all of a sudden you have to turn around and give that person a discount. And it's just stuff that people don't think about right in their day-to-day -day life. And, um, the way it can be drafted might not, you know, be obvious. And so I always tell people, 
if there's a contract and and you're you feel like it would benefit in the long run to just have someone take a look at it and do a gut check with you, you know, I'm always happy to do a cursory review. No, no negotiation or redlining, just kind of high level red flag list. Um, and and that kind of helps people kind of determine what's what's more critical and what's more important for their business. Yeah, I think that's crucial um, because, you know, again, as you said earlier, some of the legalese and the contracts can be difficult. I mean, we how many times a day do we go, oh, yeah, terms and conditions, whatever. I don't read this. Just agree. <laughs> and who knows what we're all agreeing to, right? So, um, but yeah, for your business, I think you definitely don't want to scroll and, and accept, right? No, I, no, for sure. And I actually, <laughs> I just had that conversation with a good friend of mine. We we went rock climbing over the weekend and you have to sign the waiver, right? And you just scroll to the bottom until you can sign off. And he looked over and he was like, do you, do you actually read these normally? Because you are an attorney and you, you, you want to know what's in there. And I'm like, they're not going to negotiate with me at the front desk. Like, right. <laughs> either I want to climb at the facility or not. Right. So unfortunately I think because we do as just regular people in our day-to-day life get used to just signing things without really reviewing them. Sometimes that I think spills over into your business life, right? Where you just kind of get in the habit of like somebody presented me a contract and in order to do business with them, I just have to sign it. And that's, it's not the case. And even in business, uh, a lot of contracts related to software and um, those types of vendors it's actually negotiable, even though they send it to you in a PDF and you're supposed to just click to agree. Um, there's room for negotiation there. And so I always tell people, you know, pause, hit the pause button, <laughs> um, because there might be, you know, something that you're leaving on the table or there might be something that you need to protect yourself against, like data breaches or something like that. Oh, yeah. And soft I, software, I mean, the amount of software that I run and you run, I mean, software is a is huge. I mean, just with the licensing and the terms and conditions and the use and the data protection, all of that. I mean, even just the terms of how long those contracts are are in place and when do they renew and how do they renew all of those things. I mean, I've, I've learned a couple of those the hard way, of <laughs> course, as a business owner and you just look at that and you're like, ah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I signed a contract that says that if I terminate early, I still have to pay all of the annual fees up front and I don't get any of it back. And guess what? The fee was 10,000 for the year. Or I always love it when the software companies include an early penalty provision. So not only do you pay for all the annual fees up front, but you also have like a five to $20,000 penalty, depending on how significant the software is. Those yeah. are the best. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, like as a business owner, I get it because, hey, you're messing with my cash flow and I have this thing projected out. But as the end user, you're like, come on. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So. What's uh, Paul? Is there anything that that you think would be helpful to the conversation that that I haven't asked, or is there you know something else that's on your mind that we should talk about? I I think we we covered quite a bit. Um, you know, I think overall, a lot of people start planning too late in the process. So I I think just to kind of hit it home, if the goal is to exit your business in the next year or two you know, it's not too early to start getting your house in order, um, to start creating additional value, right? Adding maybe people where you know that you're bottlenecked or creating processes in your business that help reduce the friction for when someone takes over your business. There's a lot of people that I think, unfortunately, create 
businesses that require their involvement. And those are the types of businesses that are difficult to sell or impossible to sell. And so if you're in a position where you feel like you can't take a step back from your business without having detrimental effects occur, getting out in advance of that and starting to make the changes in the business so that you can take that step back and then also officially sell it later on is so critical. The last thing I I think that anybody ever wants to have happen, and I unfortunately see it very frequently with people who are nearing retirement age, is that they haven't done the work to allow for that smooth transition and then someone becomes ill and then all of a sudden it's a fire sale and you're not getting the value that you deserve from the business because you're just looking for someone to take your place as soon as possible and if there were steps taken earlier then that position might not have ever occurred maybe you get sick and there's already people there that can can take over continue operations until it's ready to be sold not prematurely yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a lot of the difference between um, working in the business as an employee of the business, right? It's your job versus working on the business as an investor in the business. And I think that's a hard shift for a lot of business owners to make. I mean, myself included, I think about that too, as a sole practitioner, um, there's really, until somebody else comes into the business, if I'm not here serving clients, it requires me to be here serving clients, right? But it's... Yeah. um it's definitely something that as a as a as a, a business owner, especially with a young business, that you have to be able to scale beyond and then let your ego rest so that way people become clients of the business and they become attached to the business rather than to the you know the 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 one person inside of it. For sure. Yeah. No, I think uh that scalability to your point being attached to the ego is is so true it's such an accurate point right mm -hmm. uh because i think the biggest hurdle for any of us as business owners is delegation um you know i think that yeah. especially thinking about how okay this is going to take me twice as long if i have to delegate it and so you're just like i'll just do it myself um and that just it snowballs right and then all of a sudden you find you haven't delegated anything <laughs> yeah that's very true. Or, you know, we get caught up in the, Hey, I, you know, I, the, I built this thing. And so I know what it takes and, you know, all of that. And, and, uh, as a business owner, I, I think it's definitely tricky to let some of that go. So you can, what, what is it like? You have to let some of that go so you can let somebody else grow. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Well, Paloma, this has been a great conversation. I'm so glad and grateful that you were willing to have it with me. Tell me how people can get in touch with you if they have questions or if they're, you know, if they haven't put together that darn operating agreement and they heard this and they're like, oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah. So you can give me a call. My number is 480-582-0094. Otherwise, you're welcome to schedule on my calendar. I have a link at the top of my website, and that's just nocturnallegal.com. And I'll put your contact information in the show notes as well, so it's easy to reference. But you are um, you have bar admissions in Arizona and Wisconsin. Um, if somebody's hearing this from outside of one of those two states, what would you recommend for them? 
I always recommend them seeking out local counsel. Uh, local counsel is always going to be a hypercritical aspect of anybody that's domiciled in a different state. Um, with that said, there's in Arizona specifically, there's a lot of people that tend to snowbird. And so, um, you know, I think anybody that has a presence here in Arizona, but maybe has businesses scattered throughout the United States, you know, that's still a conversation that I can have with that person and determine whether local counsel needs to be brought in in certain aspects. But I think in most cases, attorneys are are great about collaborating, especially when local counsel is necessary and making those changes. So, um, if anybody ever has a question, I always tell them, give me a call. Even if I can't help you, I will help you find the right person that will help you. I'm happy to do that. Excellent. All right. Well, whatever you do, call Paloma, get your business house in order so you can sell it at some point and Paloma <laughs> will help you do that. So fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again, Paloma. This has been a great chat. Appreciate you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for, for offering to have me on the show. And I always enjoy our conversation. So I'm sure we'll have plenty more dialogue offline. <laughs> I'm sure we will. And we may have to do a part two of this. And uh, and who knows? I mean, there's some things, as as you know, that I have coming up with business exit training. And so there's probably going to be something there I'm going to write down in the middle of November. And I'm going to be like, oh, I got to get, get Paloma to talk about this. So yeah, we'll probably have a part two on this for sure. That sounds good. All right. Take care, Paloma. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and share. Learn more about your financial purpose at lifemoveswealth.com.